Episode 52, Narrative Urgency. Recorded 12th of January, 2012. This is Big Red Potion. you by the Unified Gamers Network and by GamerNode.com. You're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that won't ever come to consoles unless they give us enough money. My name is Sinan Kibber, I'm your non-elected host, and I'm joined by two men who themselves this week have outsold the PlayStation Vita in Japan. Not that that's saying much. Anyway, to my left, he is the director of our partner site GamerNode.com and the editor-in-chief of PSNFans.com, and I, we never ever say that, Eddie, so I threw that in there for you. Thank you. George. You're welcome. We know him as Eddie Inzato. Good afternoon, Eddie. Hey, hey, what's up? I'm super excited. First podcast of 2012, baby. Are we are we 2012ing or are we 2012ing? I do not 2012. You heard it here first. Right, to my further left then, he is a freelance critic for sites including Eurogamer, G4 TV, and MacLife, and he's also now officially officially the biggest Zelda fanboy on the internet since James Bachelor of Game Burst apparently relinquished his title uh, after playing Skyward Sword. He is, of course, Jeffrey Matleff. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, guys. Is, is, is Skyward Sword not, then, as good as the others? I don't know. Like, it seems... I don't know. It's hard to judge how people have reacted to it. Um, yeah, I don't want to go into it too much because I'm talking about it elsewhere on the internet later this week. Um, dot, dot, dot. It's, hmm? dot, dot, dot. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it... I like Skyward Sword, but it, to me it was a slight disappointment. So okay. Maybe not quite as good as some of the That's other fair. There we go. I've, I've not yet played it, but um, I, I'm thinking what Jeff is alluding to is if you go to a certain uh, website called GameCritics.com and follow their podcast or the next podcast, you may well hear more of his views. Anyway, before we get into today's discussion, Eddie and Jeff, I'd like to know what you've been up to since we last spoke, which admittedly was not so long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact. But as Eddie did uh, indicate, we've had, a, we've had a change of year since then. And I, was like, I would like to know, Eddie... How has 2012 been treating you? 2012 has been pretty grand. Um, there hasn't been a lot of it yet, but so far it's been pretty good. I actually just today finished posting on GamerNode the first part of the Nodi Awards, our special honors, so that's really exciting, and everyone can look forward to that. But other than that, I'll stop advertising myself and just say it's been good. It's been warm for New York. It's been so warm. Really? It's usually freezing over there this time of year, isn't it? Well, okay, by warm I mean not freezing to to the, I don't know, to zero Kelvin <laughs> as it normally is. But, uh, you know, it's it's been reasonable. It's actually not been that bad over here. Um, global warming. Anyway, so, uh, Jeff, 
How about yourself? How, what have you been up to since Eternity Year? Uh, you know, I'd love to compare to the climate over here in Portland, but truth is I haven't actually been out that much in the last week or so. I've been really busy so far in 2012, so it's it's been good. Um, I know, Sinan, you've been extremely busy as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there aren't many games coming out, but uh, uh, lots of things have been happening. Um, you know, lots of stuff going on in the industry, I guess, and... Uh, yeah, and I've also been catching up on my backlog because January is a great month to do that. Uh, and my backlog, I actually used a website called darkadia.com to uh, create a virtual shelf of my backlog because um, I wanted to get an idea of my backlog both with the digital games and the physical games. And it was pretty scary. Uh, it's it's coming in at something like about 100 games. Wow. And some of those are things like the Tales of Monkey Island thing. Uh, which is five small games in one, right? So it's 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 even more concerning than it actually looks visualized. But yeah. at the same time, I think it made me realize that, you know what, this is a project which is just going to take me a while, and I have to accept that. But I, I have to keep on going at it. I'm not going to be one of those guys who goes, you know what, I'm never going to get around to it. I'm going to play those games at some point. Probably Are you worried about... take your entire life. <laughs> it might well do. <laughs> I like to call my backlog a back cabin, like a log <laughs> cabin. It's just a back cabin. <laughs> back cabin. <laughs> back forest. Yeah. Of course, while you try and do this, your backlog is going to get bigger and bigger faster than you can go through it. So, As, and That's if I keep buying games. You see, I've, I've not included the games that I want to get, because if I'd included that, then that's just ridiculous, right? So as long as I I just need to be more responsible in 2012 or 2012 or whatever you want to call it and not buy as many games. And um, I don't know, I, I'm looking ahead to 2012 and I'm I actually not feeling like I'm going to. <laughs> it's not it's not really caught me yet this year for, for games that are coming out, apart from a few of the early ones. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, apart from apart from that I, uh, I visited the BBC yesterday, and I went to see a, a quiz show being filmed, which was kind of fun. It was it had celebrities involved. I would tell you guys about it, but um, you wouldn't know what it is. <laughs> no, I don't. Sure yeah, I've been on the BBC before. Okay. Well, I'm not sure you're going to get this one, because it's a really sort of um, early afternoon type one. It's yeah, kind I'm of sorry, one that <laughs> he doesn't really get broadcast everywhere. It's called Pointless anyway. Um presented by Alexander Armstrong and it was just it was a celebrity one which is kind of surreal it had Brian Blessed I don't know if you guys recognise that name but um, uh, he's done a few films Zed Cars and, st- and stuff like that and uh, he was a, a crazy character but um, that was kind of cool and, and they treated us like royalty Laura was in her wheelchair and they were really really nice to her so thumbs up to Beeb well done anyway that's enough meandering around uh, the discussion let's embrace it So in this month's episode, we're going to look at the concept of narrative urgency in video games. And the question we're going to ask is, can video games tell good stories when they are heavily marginalising a sense of narrative urgency? Now, it may or may not seem like a very easy question to answer. We'll leave that for right at the end to completely confront it as a closed yes or no. But as we saw from our discussion of Skyrim and Arkham City in the last episode, there's plenty to discuss here. 
And I think that's why you, uh, Eddie, suggested it as a topic for us to focus on uh, in this recording. To clarify, Eddie, what are we referring to when we use the term narrative urgency? Well, when I think about narrative urgency, what I'm thinking is the drive that the player has to achieve the the main goal of the narrative, i.e. like save the world or whatever, in a timely fashion. Um, you know, feeling like you have to proceed along the main narrative arc in order to, to succeed at the game, um, which is counter to all of the side questing that a lot of games have nowadays. So I guess like the the classic example would be a game like a Oblivion or Skyrim when you have that main quest and then this basic ocean of side quests which are completely unrelated right. to the main quest. And you could spend a million hours not even moving forward in the main storyline yet somehow you're still able to succeed even though you've wasted all this time and and the the urgency of the situation is zero in this case. Right, okay. So, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of people would suggest Skyrim and, and Oblivion as a, as a sort of classic example of a, of a narrative urgency being done poorly. We'll get into that in a second. Um, but I wanted to roundtable some examples, some other examples of narrative urgency done poorly, because I know you guys have got a, a few of these in mind, um, and then also some examples of narrative urgency done well. Um, I know there's kind of vague way of getting around it and to say done well, done poorly, but we'll, we'll, we'll approach those problems as we discuss. Um, let's start with some games then that we feel demean and marginalise narrative urgency. And uh, I'm going to go turn to you, Jeff, first, because... Uh, we highlighted in last month's discussion Arkham City. That it came up around then as you know a problem with that game. But I know you wrote an article two years ago about Arkham Asylum uh, having similar problems for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a problem that's inherent in, in a majority of video games. And to the point that it may or may not even be a problem, we'll get into that further into the show. Um, but it's it's a staple of, of video games that you know, you're, you have this overarching goal, but the player wants to look around and explore a bit. So, you know, that happened in, in the first Arkham City, and it wasn't any worse than any other game. I think it just kind of stood out a little bit more, because in other ways the game was so good about keeping uh, keeping yourself focused. It didn't really have side quests. It, the whole game was only about 12 hours and takes place over the course of one night, so it kind of felt like it was happening in real time. Um you know, then you had these Riddler trophies that you could look for that felt very counter to that. And I felt like this was, you know, taken into a further extreme in, in the sequel, where, and I don't know, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like almost every game that has side quests kind of falls victim to this, because at that point you're sort of telling the, the player, you have this really important thing to do, and then you have other stuff that's less important to do. And... I guess some games get around it better than others because maybe they're not actually less important or they might feed into the main narrative in some capacity, like uh, um, Mass Effect 2, where you help people on your crew gate and that makes them more loyal to you and that kind of helps towards the end goal. But a lot of the time, these things feel very disjointed from the from the overall goal. There's not really a clear focus. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking, um, when I was playing Nier... 
I did a few side quests that I just felt like had nothing to do with anything that was going on, and why would I, why would I even bother? And even in that game, they uh, poked fun at it by saying, "Hey, you're the guy who'll do anything that anyone asks you for no reason." Um, so that that was one time that I thought about this, like, why would I spend my time doing things like that? And it's because they were so unrelated to what I was trying to do that it made it all the more ridiculous. Say that again. It's interesting, Valkyrie Asylum, because I remember when Joe and I talked about it, we compared that game heavily to Bioshock, in the sense that you've kind of on uncovering or slowly exploring this giant structure and learning more about it as you go through it. And it feels like the the, the place is as much a character as the um, anything else in that game. And I think I don't know whether it's just that there was that extra layer of the Riddler challenges, but I, you know, I would I would agree with you to some extent, and then I'd say, but Bioshock, for some reason, never felt I never felt like there was anything distracting me from that urgency, even though there were things to do and find, you know, little things to look for, and maybe it is that sense of that they were all connected to the main goal of discovering more about this place, whereas with the the Riddler challenges, that feels more gamey. Um, and even though it was quite natural to look for them, it still felt like it wasn't related to what I was really doing in that place. Well, Bioshock didn't have as urgent an overall goal. I mean, your goal initially is just to escape or, you know, to help out with escape as well. Um, There's never any point where you're, like, in a hurry to do something, whereas, you know, in Arkham, there is, you know, you have to stop the Joker before he kills people or so on and so forth. Yeah, I suppose in, in, in Bioshock it's all about trying to find your way to things. Um, and I guess with Arkham Asylum as well, there is this very specific sort of time. There's a, a, a Yeah, there's a time in that game in that you've got... It's taking place across the, the night and it's meant to, you're meant to try and uh, finish it all before morning comes, if I remember, or something along those lines. And even though it's obviously just a conceit, it still provides you with that sense of, that sense of urgency. Uh so would you would you agree with Jeff's assertion, Eddie, that it's is this basically a problem with any game with side quests which don't tie into the main quest? For the most part, I would say that it is. It's hard to think of an example that doesn't fall victim to that that feeling that it gives you. And this seems like a problem that is only even really notable when you see the game uh, betraying your sense of of time. You know when it as it relates to the narrative, because in a game where there are no side quests, this is something that you never even think of, and it's not that it does it well; it's just that it's a non-issue, and you just play through the story. Something I didn't really think about too hard when we when I was preparing the notes for this show, but it's something that you guys have brought up: this idea of time as a as a feature in games as well. And you know, obviously, with games like Oblivion and Skyrim, they have their own, uh, you know, time settings, I guess, or time uh, features in that in Skyrim, as you go along, the day changes to night, changes to day, changes to night. Um, and I think that's the case in Oblivion as well, or all, all of Bethesda's games actually. Uh, they're open world games. And, you know, maybe that that really reinforces the fact that, that time is a part of this game, and yet you seem to be wasting it, essentially, doing all these side quests when there is this more pressing matter to, that you ought to be getting on with, or the game at least is telling you you should be getting on with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
But, I mean, there, there are ways that time can be used reasonably, you know, where it makes sense as well. I don't know if you wanted to get into that already, but, you know, an example might be um, Majora's Mask, where the time is actually a mechanic in the game that affects the way the narrative proceeds, as opposed to just being there in the background. It's when... It's when time is in the background that's a problem. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, we'll definitely get on to, to those examples in a second. But let's, let's close out a bit on, on Oblivion and Skyrim because then I'd, I'd really like to move on from them. Um, I just wanted to, to highlight a piece I, wrote, I read just before recording, which was uh, written by Jared Hammond, a guest piece for the Ontological Geek about, uh, about Oblivion in particular. And he was talking about the to quote him, the jarring disparity between the threats in the narration and the threats in the game and how it demeaned the game, in his words, as art, artistically. Um, saying that the game was reinforcing this idea of the main plot's importance and urgency, but then presents the game uh, as a, a, a world in which any one quest presents as much importance, really, to another because nothing changes. Um, I mean, I don't know, is that something that Bethesda have improved with in recent games? I mean, I... I with Oblivion, I found it very difficult to get used to that world. And Fallout 3, I didn't have as much of a problem. Um, and with Skyrim, I was prepared for that kind of game and never really gave the main quest too much thought. Is that, have, have Bethesda improved with that problem? I don't know so much that they've improved as maybe... You know, not that they've improved the design of their quest system, but... Maybe they've improved the quests themselves um, and relate them more to the world and make you feel like everything is more organic than than like the MMO style roots of of the side quest thing. In in what way have they done that? Taking the Fallout games as an example, um, I recall from my time with the games that. Most of the side quests that I had to had to complete were tied between the towns and characters, specific characters who <clears throat> whose stories would be affected by what I'm doing, as opposed to the quests being utterly inconsequential. Right. That's a really good point, uh, actually. And that's another thing that makes me think. I mean, I know, I'm. Have you? Have you? Have you? Bo- I know you've just played it recently, Fallout New Vegas, Jeff. And uh, I played some. Some of it. Eddie, did you get a chance to play New Vegas? I played a little bit, not enough to to judge it. To be happy with my backlog. <laughs> <laughs> with your back cabin or back forest. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's interesting with that game. The main quest is almost to just explore and then discover what the main quest is in a lot of ways um, to just kind of you get sold you get dumped in this middle of nowhere and it's like well if you want to eventually get there but there's no real urgency to get there uh, you basically don't know you know you've got this uh, you don't remember who you are you don't really know what's going on all this stuff it, it, and it almost really works at the same time I, I found that game very hard to get going in the first few hours, and I know you did too as well, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I think something I wrote about in that article from years ago, which I wouldn't recommend anyone read because 
I worked back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, we should edit that part out. Um, God, well, none of us can talk today. Okay, sorry. Um, anyway, so something I, I wrote about in that article about Arkham Asylum a long time ago is that I think that what, what some games do really well is they mask the difference between a side quest and a main quest. Um, certain examples of that would be like the original Legend of Zelda and more recently Dark Souls, where you don't even have a specific main quest. Or um, another one would be like Crackdown, where you, know, the, you only have one quest that entire game, which is like kill all the bosses. And you can go about this in any way. There's never any point where you're going down a you're following a waypoint or you're going into a building that you know is just a side quest. Every place you go to has a possibility of being where you're supposed to go. Uh, I believe the first Fallout actually did that, where you're you're looking for this ship for your vaults. And if I remember correctly, and I, I may be wrong about this, but I think that you had like no direction at all where to go. And you just kind of had to be lucky or ask around for it. Whereas in Fallout... Uh, New Vegas and Fallout 3, you kind of have this waypoint that tells you, hey, if you want to do the main quest, go to this place. If you want to do something else, go, you know, follow these other leads or just go off. That's an interesting thing. So do you think if you didn't know where you were supposed to go for a quest in Skyrim, you might think, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to find this thing immediately, so maybe I do have to explore this world a bit more? I think so. Yeah, I think you'd be... Um, in one of the articles that you linked us to, someone was discussing Planescape Torment, and unfortunately, I've never played that game. I'd, I'd like to at some point, uh, but they discuss how in the beginning of that game, you don't really have a prime goal. You're, I believe you have amnesia, and you're this undead guy, and you're just trying to figure out what's, what's going on. So as a result, you don't feel very rushed. There is very little urgency, and the urgency in that game increases you know, as you start to have a clearer grasp of what's happening. And as a result, the you know the possibilities in side quests kind of sounds like they decrease um, as you go to kind of funnel the player along. Right. Actually, that was, I think another. I was just before before we carry on, Eddie. I was just going to say that was the same article actually I brought up a second ago. Um, it's called a guest article on Ar- urgency, and it's at ontologicalgeek.blogspot.com. But anyway, yes, sorry, Eddie, carry on. Um, I think another factor that affects this whole situation is the way games are growing, the way the industry is growing, and the way that design is changing to to offer a more robust user interface and clear delineation of every small aspect of the world you're in in a sort of menu system, because now everything comes up as quest one, quest two, quest, 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 quest. You know, everything is written out for players, and I think that that is necessary for the growth and the the accessibility of video games. Um, whereas in the past, and even coming from roots such as tabletop gaming, um, the player could be just dropped into a situation and the point, like the beginning of of uh, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, you know, might be you're here. What do you do? You know, there's no sense of anything, and and that story develops. And I guess it's similar to 
a lot of uh, literature, I would say, in that you don't start out from page one saying this is the the point of the book, you know, like this is the point of the game in in most cases. And you have to develop the the conflict throughout your experience with this fictional world. And it seems that a lot of games now are jumping right into, okay, from the get-go, this is your goal, this is what's happening, this is the danger, you have to win um, or, you know, be the hero. And when it's framed that way, there's no room in, in logical series of events for the player for, for just running around and wasting time. Right. But the game still offers it. Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you could argue, and I think it's a relevant game to bring up now, that with the popularity of the Souls games, particularly Dark Souls on the back of Demon Souls, that you're having a kind of um, a revolt to, or a, a almost a, a sort of sulky <laughs> revolt to that uh, that movement, to that increased uh, spelling things out for gamers uh, or, or players. Um, and you know, with with the Souls games, with the with the Dark Souls, for example, you're pretty much dumped in that world and not told much about what you are going, you know, you're meant to do next. I mean, Demon Souls is more. Uh, it, it seems to offer more of a structure in that you have these different areas to explore and uh, you get the general idea that if, if you complete all these areas, then you'll get to the main area. It seems to fit in more with a, a familiar structure to gaming. Um, but with Dark Souls, you it's much more like an original Dungeons & Dragons adventure when you're dumped into that world and the only thread of narrative that you have is that you need to ring these two bells. Um no, you're not told where they are. You, you get a, a vague sort of... Uh, it's over in that place. You're not told what that place is. And, and it's not even that specific of what that place actually is. I think one of, one is a tower, and the other one's underground or something. Those, those are, Essentially, it's up and yeah, down. basically. And, and, and in fact, there are, I think, four or three different paths to go off from the beginning, and then those paths branch quite quickly. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, you know, hands-off... Uh, and yet you, that game highlights that some people don't want that. Uh, we saw last month when we talked about uh, Dark Souls, some people don't want the game to go um, to leave you completely stranded. In fact, a lot of people like the you know these, include, these inclusions. That's why they've been built up over these years, waypoints and things. People get annoyed when they're not included. So where where does the problem lie in that? I mean, is it is it conditioning? Is it... Uh, there needs to be more games like Dark Souls, or is it just good that there are both those kind of games? Well, there, are, I think there's always going to be an increasing number of a variety of types of games because just as our industry is growing, you have to have something for every type of player. However, my personal feeling is that I'm not a huge fan of all of that spelling out because it takes me out of the narrative and I am a very narrative-based player. I, I play games because I enjoy running from the beginning to the end of a story, as we found out with our, you know, playing to win and for points sort of discussions. So I don't know, but, I mean, obviously people have differing views. The 
So one thing I wanted to bring you up on, Jeff, before we move on, is you mentioned Crackdown as uh, a game where you... And I think you used this term last month, uh, whether... Or in fact, I think when we were talking about Arkham City, we were talking about the, two, the marriage of the structures between Crackdown and Arkham Asylum and how Arkham City didn't work and how those two games seem to work by kind of being more towards the extremes. But the problem with Crackdown, as you mentioned, is that there's no, there is no narrative there, right? Um, and is, is, is that the sacrifice that you get when you do something like Dark Souls and say, here's all your, your player agency and uh, go nuts with it, that a story is almost impossible to eke out of it? Um, I don't know. I mean, you're right that Dark Souls and Crackdown have these very vague stories that, that they don't really drive the player. I, I wish I'd played Planescape after reading that article because it sounds like it, it has a beginning like Dark Souls and as it comes together, there's it resembles a more cohesive narrative structure. Um, I'm trying to think of examples of games that do that, though. Because that's, that's why I was wondering if that if that is the conundrum or if it's more complicated than that. I mean, is it is it a simple thing of how do you balance player agency against na- narrative urgency, or is this a more complicated, less black and white question? Mm. Well, I think that part of it is um, when it comes to the time aspect is people don't like to fail in games. I mean, I, this is something I wrote about uh, just last month about how um, people. Like, if there was a time limit in these games, if you could play them for... If you could play a Zelda game or Oblivion for 50 hours, and then the you know the darkness really would come and destroy the land, that would kind of suck. Like, your game would be over, and you'd have to start all the way over again. Um, Dead Rising kind of did that on a, a smaller scale, but even that was pretty long. I think those games last in the 10 or so hour range, and, you know, if you don't stop the zombie plague in time... Too bad, you know. Start over, and I think get to keep your level, so it's a little easier next time. But um, and uh, people found that really punishing. Like it was a really gutsy move on Capcom's part, especially they had this save system where you couldn't have multiple save files. They wanted you to be very dedicated to having your decisions matter, so you can go off and explore. But it's you know you, you have much less incentive to just putz around. And I don't really know how I feel about that. I'm really of two minds. Like, I admired that dedication, but, you know, being trapped in a mall with zombies is kind of a place where you would want to mess around and do funny things. Right. I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I agree with you to some extent. I found... I like it as a concept. When I actually play the game, any of the Dead Rising games, I find the time-related uh, things that you have to do, like a very burdenous responsibility, which... Um, I just don't want to do. I'm not interested in doing them. Uh, I'm off somewhere deep in the mall, and suddenly the time says, oh, you've got to get back and get the stuff to, to, to your daughter, and I think Dead Rising too. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to get there in time. I don't really want to get there in time. Do I have to? And then the game stops being very fun. I mean, I don't find those games particularly fun anyway. I find the Dead Rising games incredibly overrated. But that's a whole separate discussion. Would that be a problem with the design that focuses around time or is that a problem with character development and narrative because you don't care about this girl um yeah i mean i think in dead rising it's it's not a the in that game particularly the, the characters on it's difficult because you've got a a very strange marriage of a this wacky ridiculous game and a, a narrative which isn't particularly wacky and ridiculous 
and um, you know it's it's difficult to care when you can make your character like Jeff says go do some really crazy stuff in, in the middle of this mall with zombies um, but I think there's a deeper issue related to the, to the time time sensitive stuff and that's why I really wanted to get your because I know you guys are both um, you both like Majora's Mask for what it does relating to this with time and uh, I think now would be a really good time to get into that so I don't know which of you which of you is more passionate about Majora's Mask um, I'm very split on Majora's Mask honestly but for the same reason I am on Dead Rising I love the concept in theory when I actually play it I find it really frustrating because you know if I don't fulfill a quest all the way I have to retrace a lot of steps on the second go around and I don't know. I don't like to use walkthroughs, although I had to a little bit in that game. But it, I, I feel like it... Maybe... There's just like a lot of little problems. Well, I think what it does is it, it solves that problem that a, a discerning mind can come to, like saying, well, this makes no sense because I just wasted all the time that I was supposed to have had in order to do what I have to do. So... In that sense, it by resetting time, it completely solves that issue, and I think it's it's wonderful for that. And I I commend <laughs> Nintendo. You know, I, I think it's not many games have done that that I know of. I mean, just for listeners, but, um, for listeners who've not played the game, because it is one of the most underplayed of the Zelda games. Could you just like remind us exactly what what it does? So the situation is that. Link has three days in total to prevent the moon from crashing into Hyrule and basically destroying everything. So as you go through all of the little quests that you have to do on your way to finally resolving the situation, time is passing. It's it's passing in real time. And as you approach the end of the third day, you ha- you're going to have to go back to the beginning to start over if you haven't if you haven't uh, made it as far as you know um, rescuing the Hyrule. Is it even Hyrule? It's called Termina, actually. Termina, yeah. Actually, fitting name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Carry on. <laughs> well, that's just the thing you. You get as far as you can within this preset time frame, and everything that you've accomplished remains, but then you go back to the beginning to pick up where you've left off, and there is some retracing, but there is also some progress that sticks, and every time you run through these three days, you get a little bit further. It's like climbing stairs until finally you reach the end game where you re- where you save Termina from this cataclysmic moon-crashing fate that it would otherwise be um, a victim of. I mean, it's, it's amazing to game... To, sorry, it's amazing to think that that game is so old now, and it does something that I can't really think too many games have done anything similar to. Um, right. It's. I mean, that would that would suggest that it was a failure. But I don't feel you know when people bring up Zelda, you so often hear 
um, some of the real passionate fans going, Majora's Mask is the, is the real gem in that series. It's the best game that people have not played. And I haven't played it, and I, I'd love to comment. But, um, you know, I was one of those who loved Ocarina of Time and then heard about the stuff going on in Majora's Mask and just thought, no, that's weird, crazy, too much for me. Um, and waited till Wind Waker, and it just didn't, it didn't interest me. Um, but I was, what, 12 or something at the time, so... Um, uh, I was an idiot. But... <laughs> um, I mean, what... Rather than maybe approaching this from the question of what what games balance edgy against uh, urgency well, I mean, what, let's just get down to what games you think really pull off narrative urgency. Uh, I mean, is it is it as simple as a linear game, any linear game, or are there some games which are a bit more complicated, a bit more deep, that do really good jobs with narrative urgency? Um, how about you, Jeff? You first. Mm. Well, actually, I wanted to touch on the um, the matter of sorry. Um, I wanted to touch before we get to that on how and on if it's and how important it is because I know we've been seeming very down on this podcast on games that don't do it well like it's you know something that all games need to strive for and I think that a lot of games actually can do a good job uh, without having to deal with that it's just kind of uh, something that we we sort of take for granted um, take for example point and click adventure games and those you, you know you have all the time in the world to solve a puzzle because no one's going anywhere and it to me, those games still tell a story really well, regardless of the time thing. You just kind of accept that, yeah, it's a game. It's not going to start over if I can't solve this puzzle in, you know, in ten hours to save the princess. Well, which what what games do you give us a few examples of the games you're talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. sure, like Monkey Island or Grim Fandango. Um, like I think those games have spectacular writing, and is, you know, is there a really difference between the spectacular writing and a good story, though? Hmm. Um. I I think they have good stories too. Because um, I'm not. I I wouldn't. Then again, I, I'm sorry. I just I'll quickly cut in. I I I, do, I wouldn't say the Monkey Island games have good stories. I think they're funny. But I mean, what are we calling a good story here? I mean. And then I would say that I don't think that a good story necessarily has to be urgent either. Well, that's that's okay. So following that, I mean, because okay, so. Both of you, are there other examples which fit that kind of mold then of a non-urgent story which does work? I mean, the question for me that that is fixtured this is, I mean, you're saying that it doesn't have to, but the problem is is that as a player, you've got to have the motivation to go down to to embrace the story, right? So uh, if you haven't got the motivation to embrace the story, to make it urgent for yourself, like it's almost like a prioritization of the story rather than an urgency. Uh, hmm. So that's why it, I get a bit sort of, I'm not sure about it. I, I guess maybe it sort of depends on, on what you define as urgency then. Because, you know, I, when I bring up point-and-click adventure games, those are like puzzle solving. It's not going to be a, a fast-paced thing. It's not like playing, um, you know, a level in like Metal Gear Solid or I could probably think of something faster than that, like uh, Batman, you know, that's a better one, um, where there kind of, like, is this urgency in parts of that game, at least. One possible thing, I I think it works just because of the con- of the conceit of that game and how it surprised me because of my expectations of it, but the first Professor Layton, I would say, fits your mould 
of a game which doesn't have huge urgency because you have these puzzles to solve, but has a good story at the end of it, or at least uh, a pleasantly surprising story. Um, I mean, it's not... I don't know what we define as good story, because it's all relative to literature and film and books, and um, if you know, if you just want to condense it within the scope of gaming, then I think Professor Layton has a great story. But... Um, I don't think there are that many good stories in games. That's a whole separate discussion. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. My point being that I enjoyed the story in Professor Layton, uh, regardless of having to take my time for it, because it felt like doing those puzzles and take your time with it worked in that world. It made sense in that world because you're create, you're you're left in this uh, this strange village which is designed to test. I don't want to get into the spoilers of it, but you know it all works within the explanation of the narrative and the, of the plot. Sorry, and uh, so as a narrative tool, it doesn't feel redundant or artificial. It actually works because it's it makes sense, even though it, it does, as a result, slow things down. But I can't think of many examples where the conceit is explained, and I think that's an important thing for me. Is if you can explain the conceit, then I'm more willing to forgive. So we didn't really get to answer that original question I threw out there before we went off on the tangent of examples of games which do, uh, which have strong, I'll say again, examples of games with strong narrative urgency, or where you feel compelled to move along the story uh, what, what games would you put forward as examples of that guys um, I was going to say Heavy Rain is one <laughs> okay I'm not even going to I'm not going to come down on you that. I think I possibly agree you yeah, possibly I, I agree, agree about something positive with Heavy Rain yeah. yes <laughs> put one in the column for Eddie and Heavy Rain <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that column is not high <laughs> <laughs> no, but definitely um, the way that the story is framed, it is—it's incredibly urgent to move forward to rescue um, your son, and and um, although I ha- I didn't experience it in my playthrough because I'm—I guess I'm a veteran gamer. Um, if you fail, you fail horribly, uh, and it has to do with time. Uh, at at the very core of the gameplay, um, it has to do with just even in your reaction speed, and you know all those sequences where you're trying to be successful at something, and you only have you know this is your chance, either do it or you don't. That sort of thing is highly effective in in a drawing a player in, getting you hooked on the edge of your seat in suspense, and and b preventing you from wasting your your time thoughts and energy on anything other than moving forward with your primary goal yeah, I was going to suggest games like um, the Uncharted series something that's like really aggressively linear that doesn't really give you a lot of motivation to to move from that um, another example that I, one of the articles you you showed me brought up was and if you have an open world game, you can just have parts of it that are more urgent. Like, just before we recorded, I was playing Okami for an article, and also just for fun, because Okami's an amazing game. And I was at the section where there's sort of this 
this illusion of urgency, you have to, someone's in trouble and you have to quickly get to them. And the game's not going to end if you don't. The worst that can happen is you just start back at the last checkpoint, which isn't very far back. But one of the things they do to to make it feel more urgent is anytime you try and talk to someone, your little sidekick says, now is not the time. So you, you're not tempted to go off and explore and do all this other stuff. You know that for this one particular sequence, you know, it should be urgent. And the rest of the time, the world ending is kind of this overall goal. And, you know, yeah, it's a little silly that you have all the time in the world for that, but it, it never feels that urgent. So it's, it, so it, it doesn't really come at odds with, you know, the whole exploring the world thing. Yeah, I think that's an excellent example. I wish more games would be like, what are you doing, you fool? Go do what you're supposed to at this moment. And then yeah, still give that you that for, freedom I, later. It, it makes for a well-rounded game that appeals to both uh, gameplay style sensibilities, I guess you could say. And, I mean, it, I, my, my initial reaction would be that maybe it's asking a lot of a player to change their mindset from main story to time to explore to main story to time to explore. And most stories... Um, I mean, when you think of good storytelling, there's a rhythm to it. There's always lot peaks and troughs, right? But um, maybe, maybe with something like this, it might feel too artificial to tell a good story within. Well, I think that maybe what I was getting at, and you know, one of the problems I had with you know Arkham City and some of the games we discussed earlier, where they have that that clear divide between you know the main story and, and the side stuff. Uh, what I liked about this this moment in Okami is you don't know that it's coming up. In fact, there actually was a moment like that really late in Arkham City that was the same way. I believe it was like the last mission in the game where if you try and go off and do something else, the game ends. And I think that if you don't know that it's coming, it's okay. Because like then you're kind of blindsided and it feels like a lot more urgent versus, okay, I guess I should go do this important story mission right now. But I... I find it interesting that the first two examples you guys brought up, actually, which was Heavy Rain for you, Eddie, and Uncharted for you, Jeff, because I think they have very different ways of approaching narrative urgency. With Uncharted, um, you can't lose, really, right? The game just sends you back very quickly to, to where you are before, and it just wants. And I think the idea of that is so very quick about it because it really wants to maintain the rhythm. And I think that game is all about rhythm, like it switches from cutscene to to uh, part that you play almost seamlessly um, at times and I, it feels to me like it wants you to n- not really get where non-interactive begins and interactive ends if you get my drift like there's it wants the whole thing to be a tapestry uh, whereas with with heavy rain like there's there isn't really a cutscene in every rain is there um and the whole idea is that you only have limited amounts of time you don't get second chances right you only get your one your one shot and if you screw up you screw up and you move on and it's interesting how you it almost feels like they're they're antitheses of each other they're opposites of each other in some ways um and yet you both cited them as good examples hmm yeah heavy rain's probably a better example actually in that regard I guess, yeah, 
Yeah, you're right. I think it just highlights. I think it just highlights that there are multiple ways to do to achieve the same goal, and which is entirely possible. And from those two games, I would say entirely true. Because I would say another game that I was thinking of was um, like Resident Evil Four made me always want to move forward. And it, although it's older, you know, it, it's maybe not as technic technologically advanced. It ran along the same premises as uh, an Uncharted in that you had the way to go and the game ushered you through that way and then you would have these sequences that drove the action forward very um, frantically and there was never... I, I never felt like there was a moment where I was like, well, you know, I don't really want to go do what I have to do now. And it was always move forward, go, get it done. Right. And I think the, the, the thing that Uncharted does, which I, I feel like, you know, we're maybe I and others will only spot because we play so many games and we end up noticing these things. It, it, it like it, it, it's very concessional with giving you a chance to keep the rhythm going. Um, it, it's very much about like, you know, uh, in the middle of a fight, you you get a few chances to rescue yourself, keep the fight going, and it's not it's really only willing to punish you at the, at the very la- you know last resort and send you back. Um, I think Uncharted Two did a better job of that than Uncharted Three, in fairness. Uh, but that that approach just sort of encourages you to 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 keep going and be interested. It's not it's really trying its hardest not to stop you. Uh, and I and I found that really powerful tool in Uncharted 2. Uncharted 3, I, I think, in fact, I found that one of the major problems that there were some sections, and Zan mentioned it uh, on the on the Game of the Year show, that had these difficulty spikes, that where you just seem to get very cheap deaths, and it, it suddenly all the rhythm goes, and there's no, you know, you get, you don't, you just want, it becomes more gamey all of a sudden, and there's not like this story you're just taking part in. Yeah, um, actually, on that note, when you think about scripted events just in general, a lot of them, you know, the purpose of them is to make them feel more, you know, cinematic or in the moment, but they don't necessarily work because players have agency. Uh, one that comes to mind for me going back to Arkham City is in the beginning, there's this really funny part where um, you're, it's in the tutorial, you're told how to throw uh, the smoke grenade. So there's four guys who have their gun towards you and they're not shooting and you can just stand there for like two minutes or I think just indefinitely and they'll just keep making threats about how they're about to shoot you. (laughs) And, you know, I didn't notice it my first time playing because, you know, I just used the smoke grenade, but, um, you know, I watched someone else play and it's, you know, doing that. And it's very funny that way. And Heavy Rain, you know, still has these problems. I, I remember there was the part where you're, you have to find your kid's teddy bear so they'll go to bed. And I couldn't find it. So it was like 3 a.m. and it still looked the same outside. And, you know, it's a really mild thing. But, it, you know, that moment it felt very much like an old LucasArts point-and-click adventure. It's funny how important that that when having the rhythm broken, it just takes you completely out of the of the narrative. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny that you know games that don't 
you know, aren't that ambitious like that, you know, like, you know, Dark Souls and games like that. We don't have that problem. It's when games try really hard, like, I'm surprised we haven't brought up L.A. Noir yet as another game. Oh, we're going to. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, But yeah, like, if you have something that tries, like, really hard to put you in a scene, it makes it that much easier to break the scene. I think another thing that really drives home urgency is when the urgency is related to the player character's own safety and well-being as opposed to a grander situation or like saving the world and what i mean by that is in a like in a horror game usually horror games have a great sense of urgency i was thinking about amnesia the dark descent where you start out and you have no idea what's what's going on and the only thing that you really care about is a being safe, B getting out of where you are, um, and that means that you have to go and do it. There's there's no other question about it. You just you just go and do what you have to do to make your character safe again. And I think that happens in a reasonable number of horror games. And I also thought about Manhunt. Um, yeah, I don't know why I thought about Manhunt, but the situation that uh, James Earl Cash finds himself in is an urgent, it's a very urgent situation. Um, because, again, it's his life on the line. He's not, he's not fighting to save anything. He just has to get out of this crazy <laughs> situation that he's in. Um, and that means you know, going through these levels killing all these dangerous murderer, thug, gang, whatever they are, people, and and getting out. And that's and that's all based on the individual rather than the the world or, you know, doing the greater good. It's it's just about self preservation. For me at least. I mean, what does that say about me? Um, no, I think I think it's an <laughs> actually I wanted sorry, to you go, Jeff. Jump. Um, well, that's a really excellent point, actually. I, I was just thinking about how they announced a, a day or two ago how the new Silent Hill is going to have side quests, and I was just so disappointed when I heard that. It's like, the whole point of those games is you're supposed to just, like, barely be making it out alive. Yeah. If you have a building that you can go into that, like, you don't have to go into, but you want to just for more story or whatever, it feels sort of antithetical to, you know, putting you in this place where, you know, you just... Your goal is survival, as you mentioned. It's, I always I wanted to follow up on that because it reminded me of a game which, you know, I wanted to bring up, and I haven't brought it up on the show for a while, which is surprising. But I wanted to bring up Final Fantasy X because it it has uh, a strong narrative urgency, and yes, it has um, some a problem which we've discussed before on this podcast. And it's in that the, the narrative urgency relates completely to the importance of the task at hand and how it affects you as a player. It's not the same as a horror game where it's m- more uh, in front of your face and you know short term and obvious. But the whole plot in in Final Fantasy X is you are making a pilgrimage across the world, and the pilgrimage is necessary to prevent the world from being ended. And that's a simple enough premise. It just gives you the kind of, well, I need to go on this pilgrimage then. I need to get to the end. I want to get to the end. And then I'll see what happens. And 
Um, even though that game is full of ways to go and explore, I found myself not doing any of it. I just wanted to get to the end. Now, the problem with that game, <laughs> the problem is that, and this is something we talked about on the exploration show, if you remember, Eddie, uh, it has all these physical ways of destroying narrative urgency, like all these little paths to go and find treasure on, and it all of a sudden, it, it's a very, it's not the same thing, maybe it's not narrative urgency, but it, 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 it's distracting you from getting on with things. And I find that a big problem in games, as you well know. <laughs> I think this is a great, great example to to just dissect everything we've been talking about. Because, A, it does present your overall goal right at the very beginning. B, it does have all these side quests and all these stupid paths that end nowhere. But yet you still... I, I mean, as a player, when I played it, I also felt like it was very urgent to get to the end of spirit and you know do what i had to do finish the pilgrimage that's a great example yeah i mean it's funny but it, it still has its problems like it has the blitzball thing in the middle which seems like this grandiose distraction and um things get a little bit messy at the end but you know i you know how much i love that game i'm, I'm i forgive it for far too much but uh you're not gonna make me not as, as Jeff alluded to, uh, L.A. Noir is going to come up. So after this little musical interlude, we're going to touch on an article which uh, was framed around L.A. Noir and it was titled, Games Can't Tell Good Stories. this all in with an excerpt from a piece written towards the end of last year by Tag Kelly for Edge, seemingly in response to the swathes of praise that L.A. Noir was getting for its alleged medium-advancing story. And as I said before the break, the piece is called Games Can't Tell Stories. I will briefly preface this by saying not one of us, including the three of us here and, and the five of us uh, from last month's show uh, nominated L.A. Noir for inclusion in the Big Red Game of the Year show. I was invited myself onto the Digital Cowboys last year to defend why I gave the game such a relatively low score in my paste review. Uh, and I'm aware that many people will disagree and find Take's description of L.A. Noir uh, incorrect, but work with us, this is what he said. He described it as being like Deal or No Deal, which I know you guys have in the US as well as we have here in the UK. Uh, his, his reasoning being that it was simplistic and unfair. Uh, he just suggests that games like Portal 2 are more interesting in comparison to L.A. Noir because they realise that gaming is not a storytelling medium. Uh, and I just wanted to read out this brief excerpt from that article. Games don't do storytelling well because they can't deliver the four key components of story. There is no hero. Time is in the control of the player, not the creator. There is no inevitability or sense of being powerless. And the story cannot have the player's full attention. So a video game Hamlet is just a guy running around a castle, flipping switches and collecting the items. Sorry, and collecting items to kill his uncle, the big boss at the end. All those speeches just get in the way. The player is not treading the boards of the old Vic. He's solving problems, taking action, creating and winning. 
Sometimes designers think this is just a matter of technique or technology, but it's not. It's a fundamental constraint born of the psychology of play. It will always be so, and is why in 40 years there have never been any good game stories. Hang on. But there are many great games that give the sense of a story. Games like Portal 2, Eco, and Uncharted 2 give the impression that stuff's going on, and that you're a part of it, and that it's urgent. They have great story sense. Characters may talk to you while you're doing stuff, things may happen, but the details, the structure, the drama, they don't matter. Not really. Okay, guys, uh, what would you say in response to that? I guess it depends on your definition of a story. I mean, he says that that stuff doesn't matter. I, it sounds like he's comparing it, you know, to film and literature, in which case, you know, it would be structured very differently. Um, you know, like, I, I brought up Grim Fandango before. I think that game has a great story. But if you actually look at the, just like the bare bones plot, you know, it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, you could do this in another medium. But it, you know, has like all these great little nuggets of dialogue that you get from talking to people that that are totally superfluous to the the overall story. Maybe they tie into a theme or something, but they they seem like they would be edited out. Like if, you know, if this was just a movie or something. So I feel like there's something that you definitely get from, or uh, maybe a better example, also from a Tim Schafer game is in Psychonauts, there's a part where you can find this, you go inside a woman's head and you find a, a viewfinder of her, of like her locked away memories and you see this, this uh, image that she used to run an orphanage or have kids or something and they died. And it, it gives a whole, like her character is sort of this party animal. So it kind of gives a whole new take on her character that you wouldn't get in... Um, you know, if you weren't able to explore. So in some ways, by letting the player off the reins, they're able to discover it more. And if they, I think if they had put this in a place where you had to see it, like if she had her big moment, you know, her big cut scene where this is all revealed, I don't know that it would be as powerful as like the actual action of having to pry and like discover it on your own. I'm just... I don't know, I'm stuck on this argument that uh, the games can't tell stories because they don't have four key components of the story. I just... I think it's all rubbish, honestly. Everything that he said. I think games can tell good stories so long as their goal is to tell a good story. So let's let's go over the things that he said with the four key components of the story. He said there's no hero. Time isn't in control. Well, there is. Well, he's saying, well, you, you know, I think he's arguing that you're the hero and you're not a controllable hero. Um, he's saying time is the control of the player, not the creator. There's no inevitability or sense of being powerless, which, um, you know, is often a, an argument thrown at games. games. Well, okay, so you, there are some games which... which well, let's, let's put that to another side for a second. Um, and the story cannot have the player's full attention. So, no hero... Time is out of control. Tear is out of control. Uh, too power, too empowered, and story. I mean, I don't know where. I, maybe I don't do enough English. <laughs> I didn't study English at school. I don't know if those are the four key components of story. I can't say. Um, maybe there are English graduates shouting at me. Yeah, I, I've not heard that. It was okay. either. I have a degree in English. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we're glad we have one. <laughs> we have one person <laughs> who knows what they're talking maybe about. I just, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I just took the wrong classes, and everyone else knows this. But it was not familiar to me. I'm willing to take your word on it for now. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it, let's put that to one side then. The four key components. I mean, let, let's just take this head on. Can games tell good stories? Yes. All of these things that he mentions are solvable. One one assumes Eddie that in your in your favorite game story there was a sense of urgency. Or wasn't there? Hmm. What would you say is your favorite? I, d- I don't game know story? what my favorite game story is. Honestly, uh, that's going to be tough. And I would it's argue a big question my, isn't the ones that first pop up when people ask me what my favorite game is. It's I, I don't number one, but the the ones that come up to me are you know Grim Fandango, Shadow of the Colossus, and. Uh, Bunch of Zeldas. That's my favorite of the Zeldas, a bunch of Zeldas. Yeah, I, I, I can make isn't it. That, that, that's like GBA one, isn't it? That's a bunch of Zeldas. Yeah, I, I can narrow it down to like four or five. I think okay. a lot of them are special in different ways. But anyway, um, and I feel like none of those games really have that much urgency. And I felt an incredible sense of urgency playing Shadow of the Colossus, even though by design you weren't forced to act on that. I well, felt see, it from the story. I I felt it too from the story, but at the same time, like you're, you're trying to revive this woman who's dead, so you're not. There's not really a hurry, you know. Like so, there is urgency, but it's it's one of those things where you can take your time, and often you don't necessarily know exactly where to go. You kind of have to find a path. You, you know, your sword emits a beam of light that kind of guides you in the right direction, but not necessarily. So, you know, you spend a lot of time in that game just trying to figure out where to go, which I liked. Right. And that is moving forward. You're never doing anything that isn't moving forward in Shadow of the Colossus toward your goal, you know what I mean? Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Because there's nothing else to do. There's nothing to do in Shadow of the Colossus except achieve your goals. That's, you know, that wasn't a big selling point of it. And they purposely kind of Hid that as an Easter egg. There's no stats or anything that tells you how you're doing. It's funny, you know. I, I see a parallel in that and Dark Souls or Demon Souls in that your end goal is based on difficulty. There's, you know, it's a fixed difficulty, unlike say the Bethesda games, which um, level with you. I feel I, I, as I argued last month, I don't think Skyrim does as much as previous games have. Uh, I found that leveling up did help but anyway um you know in in dark souls that end goal you you have to be strong enough to beat the final boss to win the game so everything you're doing is in a sense tied to that final act you know you're constantly trying to improve your character which i feel honestly uh, i know we cover this a lot in the skyrim chat i do think this is a big important part of role playing is the idea of how do i get to the end right um that's if you want to have a good story or how do I? Wh- why? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is another good way of looking at it. Um, and I, in I think uh, in Dark Souls, maybe that helps it have what people call an emergent narrative because everything is tied to a final act to get to to conclude the story, even if there is no real story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right in that way. Like in every RPG. The side quests do tie in insofar as you gain experience from them. You get an item. You get something that will help you. But from a narrative perspective, they're usually, you know, somebody asking you to help find their dog or something. Right. So, 
Uh, so the uh, difference between a Skyrim and, a, and Dark Souls in that sense is that you, in Dark Souls, there isn't the urgency isn't there to get to the end. Uh, whereas in Skyrim, it is telling you you've got to save the world. You've got to save the world. In Dark Souls, right. I'm not even sure what you're doing does really save the world. Yeah, really. I, I don't even remember the plot of that game, and I love that <laughs> game. <laughs> and yet, I'd say I enjoyed the, it, it from a story perspective more than Skyrim. I think Skyrim hasn't. Writing, writing, and story are very different things. I think. And yeah, I think that that's why I'm having writing. a really hard time with, you know, discussing this edge piece because story, it's it's such a, a vague term. Like I agree right. with you that I love the story of of Dark Souls, but not the plot of Dark Souls. To me, the story of Dark Souls is that feeling of going into a a dark catacomb and barely being able to see five feet in front of you and having this like sense of dread. You know, as you said, it's an emergent narrative, and I feel like in that regard. Yeah, games can have great stories. They can have stories, you know, way better than any other medium because you kind of have to be a little strategic. You have to know, you know, a book, you just keep reading and you get to the end. Whereas in a movie, or excuse me, whereas in a game, you're the only one who's going to propel you to that end. So there is, like, so there's a story that comes from that, but it's not, like, you know, it's a very different type of story. Yeah. And and it, and it, and it revolves around things which are very goal-driven, obviously. Uh, and, you know, not all stories are about such game... Well, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when we think about the great stories of film and literature today, how many of them are really about uh, violent conflicts and how many games are about violent conflicts. Um you know, there's there's subject matter which games have great trouble dealing with, and we saw that with Heavy Rain, which was trying to approach subject matter which was very unusual for games and had had its problems. Whether you ended up liking it or not, there's, the issues with that game are almost on on debatable. Um, uh, before we get to a conclusion, guys, do you want to, any remaining tangents you want to bring up? Well, I thought it was interesting that you, you mom, like for a minute, you mentioned difficulty, and that made me think about character development, and, and not character development in a narrative sense, but in a character building sense that so many games are very concerned with, and that is an enjoyable part of gaming, you know, building up your character, um, increasing your stats, getting stronger, getting new stuff, whatever. Um, I think that 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 whole goal, that that drive to do that, runs counter to telling a story that operates under the normal rules of storytelling. Um, And Shadow of the Colossus is a game in which the end of your final actions could be done with your initial skill set. At the very beginning of the game, you're you're really no different. You may have better grip. I think that's the only thing that improves by the end of the game. But your character has not undergone any great transformation from his initial state at the beginning of the game. And I think that's interesting. Um, Do you think that allows for more emotional development, which the player can feel on the, in, in, on the part of the character? I think it does. I think it does a lot of things that I haven't quite put my finger on just yet. Uh, but well, to, yeah, go ahead. 
uh, well, going off that note, uh, um, a game ending that really struck me for um, going further along that line was a Sword and Sorcery, where at the end of that game, you you de-level your health, um, your health meter becomes smaller as the game goes on. So instead of fighting, you know, bigger and bigger monsters that do more and more damage, the the creatures you encounter are the same size, but you only have like one hit point, and you know, it works that narrative of this character who's, you know, been through hell and is, you know, on the, you know, an inch away from death at the end. And I thought that yeah, was that's, a really cool way of doing that. That's wonderful. And, you know, we suspend our disbelief when we play games, duh, but <laughs> so many games involve these situations where you cross a bridge and suddenly... You know, I mean, this is going back, like, say, you're playing Dragon Warrior on the NES. You cross a bridge, and suddenly everything's much stronger. You go to different areas where everything's much stronger. There's no interspersement of, of, uh, of various types of enemies. You're always going from one place where things are weak to another place where things are strong. And that is kind of hard to believe, but we always just let it go. Everything at the end is stronger, bigger, tougher than everything at the beginning. And that really doesn't make sense. Right, um, it's a it's a it's a construct. Yeah, just think back to when you said, "Do you think this lets you connect more to emotionally to a character?" Um, I think it does that. You know, it lets you connect more emotionally to your characters, but it also lets you focus on the task at hand rather than this growth, and that makes everything else more important. When you have all this opportunity to artificially change your character then your focus is on that rather than on the narrative which is trying to be urgent but it while the narrative is trying to be, to be urgent the gameplay the the mechanics of the game are doing something different they're making you want to spend that time to build and create and maybe explore and all those other things. So I, I like the idea of a character that doesn't change drastically from beginning to end. Right. That's a very, that's a very, very interesting point. Um, and it is interesting to sort of relate that to, to like you're saying, the ideas of urgency. and uh, it's, it's almost... It's not, you know, I feel like the one thing I've garnered from listening, guys, or the one thing that I'm thinking about the most is uh, rather than being urgent with the narrative, it's a lot about maybe creating that sense of urgency with the narrative. And and a lot of it comes down to telling a good story, but there's clearly more to it than that. That, you know, because games are these weird uh, individual distinct structures with their constructs and their problems and all of this. And it's not just about telling a good story to create a, a sense of narrative urgency, but gosh, it helps as well. If you can, if you can make it, the player feel like they should be getting on with stuff. Um, but there, there is other, there are, you know, there are mechanical things, if you want to call them, them that as well, which, uh, which can be important. Or are important, indeed. <laughs> uh, clearly are important. Right. We wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't important. Exactly. <laughs> I, feel, I, I feel like on that note, uh, because as we've kind of been saying, uh, which are off-air, I guess you'd say, this is a big topic, the to, to sense of can games tell good stories, and while we want to focus on narrative urgency, there's a whole big kettle of fish we could get into, and, uh, you know, 
clearly there's more than another episode in this, but <laughs> let's tackle one thing at a time. We can't fix gaming with one show. I know you want to, guys. I know you're keen. But we just can't. I know. Fix gaming. Like we're even contributing. Anyway, right, so that does conclude the first discussion of 2012. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you very much, Eddie, for, for joining me today. You are very welcome. Thank you for being here for us. Oh, thank you. I, I remembered that I was supposed to close the discussion with asking that original question, but you know what? I don't think we're going to answer it particularly well, so I'm just going to leave it there. It's unanswered. I don't think there's a right answer to that question, honestly. I think I think uh, it's it's too deep, and I feel like that's what I've got as well from this. So anyway, moving on. Place closed. Let's finish the show. Recommendations. Jeff and Eddie, your work is all over the interwebs. Uh, so rather than plugging your distinct pieces of work, I'm just going to say that you should follow Jeff on Twitter at Mr. Durand Pierre, which is M R D U R A N D Pierre. And Eddie, you are at Eddie Inzato, which uh, people don't know your surname has to spell it. That's I N Z if you're an American, Z if you're normal, A U T. <laughs> I just threw that in there. Uh, but, yeah, apart from your own sterling work, uh, gentlemen, what would you recommend for our listeners to check out uh, in, in January? Anything anything going on that's exciting? Eddie, how about you, first of all? And don't say gamer and stuff. <sighs> no. What you is already, going you on did the, did the whole... I know, no, no, I wasn't planning to. I'm just trying to think of things that are interesting. Doesn't uh, have to be gaming. Yeah. I'm going to be on Gossip Girl and Law and Order SVU in some capacity, but that's not important. So I don't know. Whoa, 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 whoa! whoa. <laughs> <laughs> is this no, in a greater than extra capacity? Yeah, yeah. Since living in New York, I've just been doing some background work. But I, I want to talk about that. Oh, how, how is how how is it being an extra? Do you meet the stars, or do or are you put in a pen and asked to wait until filming? Mostly kept away. Kept away. So, Law and Order, and have you have you done these already? Yes, you did them. Okay, what did can't, you do? What was your can't extra tell job? You actually, you can't tell us. Then, if someone hears it and they say, "Hey, I heard your podcast. Now you can't work with us anymore because you spoil stuff." So I'm I'm just going to avoid that situation because they give me money. Man. <laughs> Well, it's, we we got to see your uh, your smiling smiling happy face on that uh, that piece on Muggle Quidditch. I had to remember what the official term yes. was as for for CBS. Is that still up somewhere for people to look at? I think so. Yeah, that should be. It was NBC actually. NBC. Sorry. Oh, what okay. is that show called? I don't even remember. I'm sure if they type in Google NBC Muggle Quidditch, good chance that they'll see you. Uh, with a very, very, very big grin and not saying an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, because I thought it was hilarious that we were doing this. Doing and I think it, it is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's awesome. That's fantastic. That's a good That's a good recommendation. Uh, it's a sad thing that we won't be able to see you on Law and & Order and, and the other show, Gossip Girl, until very long and discover what you were up to. I hope it was yeah. exciting. Um, yeah, Jeff... Fun. <laughs> Jeff, how about yourself? Uh, recommendations. Um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been hopelessly addicted to Friday Night Lights on Netflix, which is shocking to me because I could not care less about football in any way, shape, or form. But it's a great show, and I, I just want to keep watching more. 
So, are you, are you referring to the American variety of football here? Yes, yes, the American variety of football. Okay. Because Netflix, actually, this is very timely. Netflix has just come to the UK. Uh, I, um, I, I, I'm aware of this. So, do yeah. you have the same? Do you know if you have the same instant watch selection as as American? I would imagine that, like, no. I would that be my impression based on how these things work. But maybe, uh, and you know. We have U.S. listeners anyway, so that's a, we can certainly throw out a, a recommendation for Friday Night Lights. I know we have some American football fans who listen. So, um, so what kind of show is it? What, what happens? Oh, um, okay. It's a it's a drama about a a high school football coach and his team in a small town in Texas. And wow, it's it's really hard to describe without making it sound terrible um, because it like. I was really turned off by it at first because, you know, it's a small town of people who play football and they're all Christians and I'm neither of these things, so... You're not um, a small town or people? Yeah, I'm not that, so um, it turned me off, but I think one of the things I really like about it is it, you know, I, I sit at home and write about games a lot, so I feel like I kind of lose touch with society that doesn't have anything to do with me that, you know, I have some friends who aren't gamers, but as far as, like, I don't know anyone who's like anyone on this show, you know, and it kind of, God, it's going to sound so cliche, but it kind of just makes you, it reminds you that people aren't so different after all, and it kind of gives you these multiple perspectives in a way that's really, really well done, really great writing, um, and, you know, they show some good things about football, too, that it has even though it's super competitive and aggressive and there's a lot of sleazy business feelings in the back end, one thing I like about it is that, like, people from all different walks of life have this common goal and it, it just has, like, this real energy about it. And anyway, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, really addictive. So, You know what? I'm going to recommend a book. It is a graphic novel. I'm, breaking, I'm picking it up so I can look at the name of the author. It's by Craig Thompson. It's called Habibi, which is um, the Arabic word for like my darling or my loved one. Um, and it is, you know, what? I'm not even like enough in it to tell you exactly what it's about. But it's a, it's essentially about a, a girl who uh, was sold by her family at a very young age to another to another family to a man to become his wife and it's, it follows her story you know she, she escapes she uh, gets sold into slavery then she escapes slavery and ends up in the desert looking after this african child for years upon years almost becoming mother it's an it's a i'm really enjoying it it's really beautifully drawn has some incredible uh, mixture of western and arabic art the story is really mature and interesting um it's a hugely lauded and for anyone who like me is a bit of a graphic novel kind of just gets lost to them and, and reads far too many when they should be reading books without pictures then uh, you should check it out that is it for this episode we'll be back in February with another show we'll be welcoming back we'll be welcoming back our missing uh, regular guests which are Joe Delia and Gary Blower uh, of course and um I'm sure you guys will be back on the show soon enough, won't you? Yes, sir. Yeah. Excellent. Um, But until then, it's bye from Eddie. See ya. Bye. Bye from Jeff. Bye. (laughs) And it is bye from me. 
talk to you soon in February.